Hello, my name is Stuart Leakes and I'm here talking to the director Tim Albury about his new production of Handel's Giulio Cesare, which opens Opera North's uh, winter 2012 season. Um, can we just clear up one thing to begin with, Tim, which is uh, this Giulio Cesare, Julius Caesar, is not the same story as uh, Shakespeare's. Julius Caesar, is it? And I suppose the clue is in the full title, which is actually Julius Caesar in Egypt. So what's it all about? Yes, well, there's no Brutus and there's no Mark Antony and Caesar does not die in the Capitol or any of those things. Um, we, we are finding Caesar on a campaign of waging war against Pompey, who at this moment is his Roman rival for the leadership of Rome and he has chased him all the way to Egypt and finally defeated him in a battle, which, which has all happened before we start. Mm. So it opens with him going, now I've taken control, I'm in charge of Egypt, I'm in charge of the whole Roman Empire, and Cornelia, who is the, the wife of Pompey, arrives to sort of plead for peace, and Caesar magnanimously says, fine, let Pompey come to me and we will conclude a peace, as basically as long as I'm now in charge, and he admits that he's lost. And a moment later, in comes an Egyptian general with the dead Pompey, who is given as an offering by Ptolemeo, who is the Egyptian king, um, who has been gone to by Pompey to ask for his help, and instead what he's done is killed him because he's decided Caesar is the man to try to please and presents the dead body. Caesar is outraged, and from that the rest of the plot emerges. And Cleopatra, who is of course our, our main interest apart from Caesar in the evening, is the sister of Ptolemeo, and believes that she should be the queen of Egypt rather than him be the king of Egypt. Um, and you suspect you've never really discovered that they are sort of co-rulers, but Ptolemeo has basically taken over. And possibly they might be married to each other because, of course, back then brother and sister could easily have been married to each other. So, so we don't really get any real information about that except that they loathe each other's guts but are tied together in ways that uh, are those of brother and sister. So the dispute between the brother and sister, king and queen of Egypt, and then the love that Caesar develops for Cleopatra are the sort of springs of the narrative with several, several subplots. <laughs> running off that. Indeed. And Ptolemaeus is, is, is one of those wonderfully unhinged Yes, I mean, he's basically piece. deranged. Yes. Um, he's a sort of obsessed with sex, wants to, wants to make love to every woman he meets, and yet is described as effeminate by his sister. So he's a, he's a complicated young man um, with a sort of desire for blood and sex, seems to sort of rule his life. She is very, very, well, as Cleopatra traditionally, she's a very young Cleopatra, and she's a sort of seductive, able to seduce, but much more interesting than that, because as the evening goes on, she discovers she has fallen in love mm. with Caesar, where she started out trying to seduce him in order to help her power struggle. Eventually, she's in love with him, and, and out of and same thing happens for him. He meets her and thinks, God, she's attractive. And then gradually realizes that he needs a companion, and he's had a wonderful aria when he's looking at the, the ashes of Pompey, who's now dead, and has this beautiful aria where he sings about the, the loneliness of power and the inevitability of us all dying and the pointlessness of it all. And you sense that thing that I, people who are powerful probably often have of being lonely because you can't trust anybody. So he meets her, and it goes from being a flirtation to becoming a need for her. Mm. And for her, her, of course, he represents a kind of security and, and warmth and generosity that he, she doesn't have in her world, where it's all about distrust and, and Machiavellian behavior. Mm. So they need each other, and by the end they have each other, so you get the kind of 
romantic ending. Yeah, and I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? The, the, you know, the, the personal kind of machinations and mm. the relationships and liaisons and rivalries and so on actually have this enormous impact on the whole of the you know the whole of the known world, as it were. Exactly, exactly. So, so it's how do you, how do you balance that? You know, um, and of course the plot is 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 mayhem in many ways, <clears throat> and there are moments when you go. How can that person have just said that they'll show this person the way to Ptolemaeus? And the next second, these are minor characters, next second they're with somebody else. And there is no clear dramaturgical narrative reason how this, uh, to explain how this has happened. Because in many ways people at Handel were not overly concerned with the mechanics of plot, which is why their plots are sometimes so very complicated, more to set up a series of interesting emotional or dramatic situations. But what we would think of as realism didn't really concern them terribly, I don't think. So let's let's just explore that a bit because, um, you know, uh, Handel was a hugely prolific composer of Italian opera, though he was based in London for the most of his career. He was German. And he was German. So yeah, extraordinarily cosmopolitan figure, and actually, you know, it does does make him rather unique. Um, so, but we're talking about the first half of the 18th century. So this is sort of pre-Mozart opera. And it had a very particular, quite rigid musical structure, didn't it? Um, can you just, just uh, talk us through that a little bit? Yes, it, it, it has a very rigid form, which is obeyed and then disobeyed. Um, and when it's disobeyed, it's very surprising. Because the essential form is that People talk to each other in what's called recit, which is basically you have a minimum, minimal accompaniment on harpsichord and maybe cello and maybe theobo or uh, something like that, and uh, which gives you a sort of undertow in which you can basically talk to each other like a scene from a play. It's sung, but it's, it's not like a song. Uh, and then you'll get an aria, and that aria will be composed of an A section and a B section and then a repeat of the A section. And then you'll have some more chit-chat and then you get another aria sung by a different character with an A section and B section and repeat of the A section. And so it goes on. And occasionally you'll get a duet. And very, very occasionally you might get a little chorus. Um, and so those duets will, will they're very, very surprising because you've got so used to this relentless structure, um, which sounds um, painful, um, but it's actually incredibly enticing. Um, and this, in the repeat of the A section, the, the musical notion is that then you decorate and improvise around the structure of the A section when you repeat it again. And of course, back then in the 18th century, Handel's audience, well, every season they would announce who was in the company this year. And it was very like a soccer club these days, you know, Manchester United are now building a new team and everybody wants to know who's going to be on it. The same thing would be Handel would announce, oh, well, I found this castrato from Italy and he's coming this year to sing. Or there's this brilliant soprano that everybody had heard about from somewhere in Italy or somewhere in France who he'd managed to entice over for some astronomical fee. And they would turn up and the audience would want to know what they were going to do with that repeat of the A section. Um, and the chit-chat that went on between was not terribly important. Apparently people would talk and chat away in the audience during it and pretty much ignore it, which is why the plots sometimes have, have problems because essentially nobody really cared about that. They were waiting for the next number. And then if they really loved the number, they would yell and scream and they'd sing it again. Um, so it's a very different approach to 
opera and what you want from it to, to the one that we now have. And I mean, a, a, a couple of things. I mean, one, the, 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 the arias, as, uh, what is extraordinary about them really is that the, the sheer beauty of them. I mean, it is some of the most beautiful music I think ever written for the voice. Extraordinary melodies. And they explore in the most extraordinary way the character's emotional or psychological situation, in a sense. It's not so much about advancing the plot. That happens Absolutely in the rest. What's so remarkable is the text of the arias tends to be at the most about four lines, because the A section might be... Uh, she is like a beautiful bird and I love to hear her singing, put really crudely, and then the second section might be, I love her and I want to be with her forever, and then repeat the first section. Um, so the text of the aria basically is a, is a colour of, of emotion, nothing more. Um, and then it's what the music does that is so heartbreaking and enticing and beautiful and all those other things. And I suppose that for the, for the performers and, and for me, the task then is to somehow, with the action that goes with those arias, because clearly you don't want people just to stand and sing them, which is probably what they would have done back in Handel's time yeah. with, some, with some basic gestural qualities which the audience would have understand as being expressions of love or hate or whatever. Uh, they would probably have pretty much stood and sang. Um, we live in a completely different experience of what it is to go to the theatre and inevitably that's coloured how these pieces are done and I think the reason Handel has become so much more performed in the last 50 years than he was between the time of the early 18th century and now. Uh, back, back in the 19th century he fell pretty much completely out of favour because people thought, where's the drama in this? Um, and I think we, that is we collectively as a, as a culture over the last 50 years, have discovered that if you really investigate what's going on between the people, these arias are not these standalone things. They're actually very complex interior emotional narratives. And, and in a way, you have to think of them as duets or trios in which the one or two or three other people who are on stage at the time that one person is singing are integral to the aria and it's as if they were also singing mm -hmm. so that it's the engagement between the person singing and the others that are around him or her that probably then creates an emotional tension a narrative thrust that it doesn't seem to have at face value um, and finally could you just choose out of uh, many many <laughs> potential <laughs> musical highlights you, just yes, one yes. just I mean, one because you, you, you could have almost any of about 80% of the arias, there's probably only about, of the music that we will keep in the evening, there's probably only about 10% of the evening that you might go is slightly under his best level. So you do have a huge choice. I mean, there, there, there are two things. There's, there's Sesto, the young boy who wants to avenge his father's death. Uh, he has this beautiful aria to hope, um, just asking for things to be all right. And then there's another area which I think I'd probably choose in the end, which is Cleopatra's one, um, when she's realised she's in love with Caesar and he's gone off probably to die, and she sings Piangero, um, I Will Cry, and it's fantastic. Marvellous, thank you very much. Okay.